Welcome to the Move Forward Podcast with Dr. Kim Moss. We are here to move you forward in the call of God for your life, your career, and your ministry through prophetic insight, practical teaching, and powerful conversations with influential leaders. Never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward. Welcome to Move Forward. I am your host, Dr. Kim Moss, and today I am coming to you from Studio B, and I have with me my very special guest, Dr. Craig Keener. You've met him before if you've ever listened to my podcast. Craig Keener, PhD, Duke University, is FM and Ada Thompson Professor of Biblical Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary. He is author of 33 books with more than 1 million copies in circulation. The books have won 13 national or international awards, including six in Christianity Today. These include the IVP Bible Background Commentary of the New Testament, which I have right on my shelf behind me, and major academic commentaries. In 2020, Craig was president of the Evangelical Theological Society. Craig is married to Dr. Maydeen Masunga Keener, who was a refugee in her home country of Congo for 18 months. Her experience and their romance appears in Impossible Love put out by Chosen in 2016. You can find out more about Dr. Keener and his resources at craigkeener.com. He also has a YouTube channel, which we will be putting up on the screen so that you can check him out on YouTube and all of his teachings. You know, when I met Dr. Keener, I was immersed in my doctoral studies with Dr. Randy Clark, and we had been talking for months about the Holy Spirit and the gift of prophecy. And Dr. Keener was invited in and he brought in and he came in and he talked about the most common misinterpretations of scripture. And I was completely, my mind was completely blown because I had actually made some of those mistakes. But he proceeded to bring one of the passages that was most commonly misunderstood to life for our co cohort. And it affected me deeply, and I have never, ever forgotten it. So, Dr. Craig Keener, thank you so much for uh, joining me today, and I'm so glad that you are here with me. Thank you for your time. Um, it's, it's my privilege to be with you, Dr. Kim Moss. <laughs> I am. You are one of my favorite people to talk about scripture with. And so I have invited you to talk about scripture today. And so we're going to talk about the book of Revelation. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. I love All the right. book of Revelation. <laughs> I know that you do. And I think that you are teaching it on it right now. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. I teach, a, uh, I'm teaching master's students and PhD students on it right now. That's fantastic. All right. Well, we might as well get started because this time goes by super quick and I want everyone to get like just the most that we can get. And uh, and this will probably be a two part show. So you will want to uh, tune in next week also to hear the rest of what Dr. Keener has to say. So, Craig, if I may call you Craig, um, to whom was the book of Revelation written? It's actually explicit. I mean, just like Paul's letters say to the Corinthians or to the Philippians, Revelation says it's written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. It's written in Greek, the language that they understood. It draws on a lot of images that were familiar from the Roman Empire. So that's important to take into account. It, it doesn't mean it's not relevant for everybody. I mean, Paul's letters are relevant for everybody. The Old Testament's relevant for everybody. 
But we, we learn from it taking into account the setting that it originally addresses that helps us to understand, well, the Greek, but you know, we have translations, but also the background of what was going on at the time and what kind of images he's using and what sense they would have made to the original audiences. Yeah, I think that that's always so important when we look at any any of the scriptures, because to take it out of context or to take it away from its original audience or what the what the author intended really sort of skews its meaning. And I think more than well, maybe not more than any book in scripture, but one of the most misinterpreted or misunderstood books in scripture is the book of Revelation. I have heard so many crazy things said about Revelation. And I think before we started, I told you a few of those, which I'll bring up later. Um, but Revelation, actually, it is a prophetic book. All the books of scripture, I would call prophetic because they're born by the Holy Spirit through men. Um, but it is a particularly prophetic book using lots of prophetic words and type things, but why was it written? It was written, well, partly to encourage suffering churches. So you, you read about the seven churches, two of them aren't rebuked for anything. These are both suffering churches. And so this message would be an encouragement to them. Yeah, you may go through suffering, well, you will go through suffering, but the Lord is coming back and his reward is with him. So it talks about the New Jerusalem and, and uh, other wonderful things that await us in the future. But five of the churches, uh, sort of four and a half of the other churches, were experiencing compromise to various degrees, compromise with the same world system that was actually killing their brothers and sisters in the other churches. And so to them, the message of Revelation comes more like, you better watch out. I'm coming like a thief. Don't live for the values of this world system. Live for the promise of the new Jerusalem. Wow. I, that's so, you know, we were talking before, it's so relevant for today. I'm, scripture is always relevant for today, but in particular in a, in the era that we're living in, I, I have felt, I just finished a study with a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Ellen Hawkins. I think that you met him in our cohort as well, but we finished a study in the book of Hebrews. And I was so struck at how relevant the message was because it was, it was really warning, warning God's people not to apostatize, not to turn away from Jesus. And now we are, we are talking about the book of revelation and how it's saying to us, you know, you better not compromise with culture. And isn't this really the day? I mean, it's really a truly a danger that we're in right now. And I think that um, I think that we could say that many, uh, you know, I don't want to indict. I hate to, I hate doing that because these are broad strokes. But mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the church feels compromised to me, especially with all the political things going on and and the different power structure things going on uh, in the world today. So I think that's really an important message. So my next question would be, practical question, does it, and I, it seems like such a simple question, but I think it's, it's important for us to talk about, does the book of Revelation use symbolism? Oh. Well, Revelation chapter one and verse 20, Jesus tells John that the the seven lampstands or the seven churches and the 
seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So if Revelation itself is going to explain some of the symbols, obviously it's using some symbols. And actually, even in the first verse, where it says that God sent and signified this message to, to John, the word signified there, it's a, it's a Greek word, semino, which is related to the word semea, which is used for signs or symbols in Revelation chapter 12. So, you know, it, it's obviously communicating in some symbols. You've got the, the woman clothed with the sun. On average, we're about 93 million miles away from the sun. But, you know, if we were just twice as close to the sun, we'd all be burnt to a crisp. And so, you know, here's a woman clothed with the sun, you know, obviously we, we know not to take that literally. Or the, or the woman who's, uh, you know, she's got this, this name on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes. So you meet a prostitute, you say, oh, I read about your mom in the Bible. You know, it's not, it's not meant to be taken literally in that way. And some people will say, well, take literally as much as you can. But who made up that rule? It seems to me we should be consistent with the nature of the book. What we have in, in Old Testament poetry, you have a lot of um, symbolic language. Like when uh, Song of Solomon says, uh, you know, you look like a horse or says your, your neck is like the tower of, of ivory or, you know, your eyes are the pools of Heshbon, you know, so they drip out of your eye sockets. You know, we, we know not to take that literally. It's poetic, poetic language. But most of the pre-exilic prophets prophesied in poetry in their books. Now, Revelation isn't mostly in poetry, but it does carry over a lot of the symbolism that we have in the Old Testament prophets. I think that's fascinating. And, and, and Craig doesn't signs when, when the, when the Bible uses signs, it always points to something else. So, so the word for, for signs there, it reminds me, I'm just recently learning. So this is brand new for me. So I can't really give you a lot of uh, wisdom and understanding for it, but but semiotics. There's a, the study of semiotics, which is a study of signs, um, and prophecy is is signs and symbols. You know, and so those signs are always pointing to something else. So they they are to be interpreted in a certain sort of way. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. In 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 this case, we we have a consistent way to do it because we've got you know the Old Testament. Uh, we also know what a lot of the symbols meant in the in the first century world. Um, it is important to see that Revelation sometimes adapts the symbols in a different way. So, like for example, in Genesis 49, you have the lion from the tribe of Judah. So conquering warlike Messiah in a sense. And that's how it was understood in first century Judaism. But in Revelation 5:5, John hears about this conquering warlike lion and he turns and what he sees is a lamb, not a mm -hmm. powerful beast, but the, the, the meekest, the, the gentlest of animals and not just a lamb, but a slain lamb. And so in light of the gospel, in light of what we know about Christ, it takes on a, a further meaning. So we do need to allow for, for the adjustments in Revelation um, and we can talk about more of those as we go on. Well, I think that that's really good. I was just thinking about the other day I had, uh, 
I was I was sitting in on a talk and I heard someone say that they were worried about a lot of the songs that were coming out right now about Jesus as the lion and uh, that we were making him into such a conqueror that it was almost predatorial when really it's the lamb of God who was slain that opens the seals and, you know, and we sing the lamb of, we sing the song of the lamb, you know, in revelation. And I, and I think that's really true. While at the same time, I think that, um, that we have to understand Jesus as both lion and lamb, you know, but the enemies he's conquering aren't, isn't our next door neighbor. Yeah. Right. I mean, people, people were <laughs> expecting, the lion to overthrow the fourth of Daniel's kingdoms, which was in their day, they thought that was Rome. So, you know, they're expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow Rome. And instead, he's crucified on a Roman cross. He yeah. lets Rome kill him. And in yeah. his death, he came because Rome was small fries. Jesus didn't come, his first coming to conquer Rome, he came to conquer death. Gosh, I didn't never thought about that's. That's fantastic. I want to just sit there just for a second. Rome, Rome was small fries. I never heard anybody, but it's so true compared to conquering death. Rome was Rome was nothing. And I think sometimes we are so, you know, my mom used to say, Kimmy, you're so close to the forest. You can't, see, you're so close to the trees or whatever. You can't see the forest, right? I'm so, so focused on this one thing. I can't see the bigger picture. And he had so much, something so much bigger in mind when he came than, than conquering a single nation. He was conquering the enemy of all people of every nation and every tribe so that we could all have the opportunity to be saved. Wow, that's, that is profound. That, that was beautiful. Rome's small fries. He came to conquer a much bigger enemy. Yeah. Amen. So, all right, moving on just a little bit, because I think that this is a bigger, this is now we're getting into sort of a, a bigger topic, but um, can you give us an overview as you understand it of this book, this magnificent book of prophetic word for us? Sure. Just like a letter would open, it opens with greetings from, um, from well, it, it opens with greetings from the one who sent it, and it identifies the, the sender. And, uh, you know, in Paul's letters, he gives blessings. He says, uh, grace and peace to you from God, which, which was common in the ancient world. People would send greetings from a deity, but he says from God and from Jesus, showing that Jesus is divine. And actually you have kind of a Trinitarian opening in, in Revelation from the Father, the Spirit, and then he goes on and expounds more about the Son. And then Jesus appears to John and begins to give him th this message. You have the letters to the seven churches, and then uh, John is caught up to heaven in chapters four and five, a scene of, of worship, all the furniture in heaven, and you've got the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, you've got uh, the sea, that's later in Revelation, but you have... Uh, all the kind of furniture that shows you that heaven is being portrayed like a temple, a place of worship. And then uh, in chapters six through basically, well, six through 16, because I guess the rest is another section, but six through 16, you have uh, three cycles of judgments with some uh, material in between. You have uh, three sets, of, uh, you have seven, seals of judgment you have 
uh, seven trumpets of judgment. You have seven bowls of judgment. And uh, these seem to go over the same thing. They all end at the end of the age. And then you have in verses 17 through um, 19, you had um, it talks about Babylon the Great. It you have end up with a funeral dirge in chapter 18 over Babylon the Great, and then uh, and then heaven is celebrating the fall of Babylon the Great in chapter 19, and, and so you go from a funeral dirge to the the wedding feast of the Lamb, and then in chapter 20 you have the thousand years, and 21 and 22 you have what everybody agrees is future because there's some some uh, the future, the future age, and uh, it's just beautiful. There, it's like eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither it entered the human heart the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. First Corinthians two nine and ten. And the words can't describe it, but John comes close, and and you know he takes all these Old Testament images, but it goes beyond them. It's never against prophecy to be better than what's prophesied. And so like, you know, I saw no temple there because God and the lamb are the temple. And uh, the, the the description of the new Jerusalem, I mean, it's shaped like a cube, just like the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. So we will be in God's presence, undistracted forever and ever. Like the high priest could enter, enter that only once a year, but we will be in God's presence continually. It just, ah, it's wonderful. You sound so excited about that, Dr. Keener, and I love that. So I think with the with the time that we have left, because we'll come back next week and we'll do a second edition to this, and we're going to talk about all the controversial things about, <laughs> about Revelation, and there are many. Um, but what I want to start with now is um, how have people interpreted revelation through history, especially when it comes to the millennium, because that's very confusing for a lot of people in Revelation 20. So you can talk about a little bit about that. And we have about 10 minutes left in our program. Sure. Um, among the early church fathers, there already were a variety of interpretations about revelation. Uh, and you had, I think it was Hippolytus who said that the Antichrist would surely come by the year 500 course, that was well after he died, so nobody could say, ah, you were wrong. Um, St. Martin of Tours said the Antichrist had already been born. Martin died in 397, so if he was right, the Antichrist has displayed remarkable longevity. Although 1 John 2.18 says, you've heard that an Antichrist is coming, even now there are many Antichrists, so he was right in that sense. But uh, you, you had you had people making all these predictions. The Lord would come back in the year 1000. The Lord would come back in the year 1180, you know, and and, and so on. Uh, and the one thing they've always had in common is they've always been wrong. So I mean, we we should learn something <laughs> from that. <laughs> you know, there 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 are, you know, you can say, well, this might be that, this might be that, but when you say this is that and this is that, people have always been wrong in the past. So. I think it's safer to learn the principles from it that are relevant for every generation. On that, I mean, we can preach, it's relevant. You know, some of the other things, sometimes with prophecy, you understand, oh, this was that after it happens. And so, you know, it's it's safer that way. But just to take a, a few other examples of, of misinterpretation, 
the kings of the east, Revelation 16, 12, coming across the river Euphrates, the prophecy teachers from like the late 1800s and early 1900s, they were saying, ah, that refers to the Turkish Ottoman Empire. They're dangerous. Well, that wouldn't have made any sense to the seven churches in Asia Minor because where were they? In Turkey. So after, after World War I, the Turkish Ottoman Empire was, was cut up, was divided up, and they decided instead the great threat on the horizon is Imperial Japan. But after World War II, when the West became friends with Imperial Japan, they said, no, it must be communist China, the great red dragon. Well, after detente, they changed their minds again. And so what you see is when people are using headline hermeneutics, you know, trying to figure out what things mean based on current headlines, they have to keep revising their interpretation as the headlines change. But it's much more practical than that. I mean, in the first century, everybody knew the river Euphrates is the boundary between the Roman and Parthian empires. The Parthians were the, were the most frightening enemies of the Roman Empire. Sometimes they defeated entire Roman legions. And they'd also invaded Asia Minor, where the seven churches were, just within a decade before these letters were written. So to use a, a symbolic image of something fearful, something frightening of, of an invasion of conquest, well, kings of the East across the river Euphrates would make sense. But instead, people have used it in the service of anti-Asian ethnocentrism, in a sense. And, and we, have, we have other examples of misinterpretation. Um, the, I won't say the name, but, but the author of the, I think it was the 1970s nonfiction bestseller of the decade, um, kind of hinted, and some other people went and actually said it must mean this, that Jesus would have to come back by 1988, 40 years from when Israel became a nation. And you had so many people making fun of Christians after that, that fell through, because so many people were saying that. There was a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Might Come in 1988. And of course, he could have come in 1988, but, uh, but I had a friend who worked in a Christian bookstore, and she said, you know, that was... Uh, uh, the, the, the owner of the bookstore said, you sell as many copies of this as you can before December 31st, because in 1989, nobody's going to buy this book. And look, she was, she was prophetic because, <laughs> uh, you know, it sold like over 3 million copies in, in 1988. But in 1989, nobody bought the revised edition. Let it never be said that North American Christians are easily deceived two years in a row by the same person. <laughs> So it's really important that we study the book and see how it fits together, you know, see how the symbols are used consistently through the book and understand the background and so on, which is what we would do with any other book in the Bible. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's so important. I can't tell you how many people I have had asking me because of because of everything that's happening right now especially the pandemic has made so many people fearful and has traumatized many people but with that going on and then everything that happened with the elections and then you know now we have a war in Ukraine and we have all these things going on and um and so they are looking for um 
an answer about the future. And they then they begin to put all of that fear that they have into the book of Revelation and say, oh, I, I, I see it here. I, I see it here. And I think I think they're actually looking for comfort and I think they're actually looking for uh, assurance, you know, that that things are going to be OK. And I believe the book of Revelation does exactly that. It just doesn't do it in the way that they are they are saying. And um, and I, I think that it, it's time for us to be really careful about how we use scripture to um continue to engender fear actually is what I think that does. Yeah. It's meant to scare people who are unrepentant <laughs> to repent, but it's <laughs> meant to, it's meant to be an encouragement to people who are following Jesus. You know, a couple of times in revelation nine, 21 or so revelation 16, 21 or so it says they still didn't repent. That was the purpose of the judgments, was to get people to repent from the greater judgment to come. But yeah. for believers, it's an encouragement. Look, God is in control of the world. The world isn't in control of itself. They think they are. They may, they may repress God's people. They may practice injustice towards others. But ultimately, God is on the throne. And there's coming a time, you know, these are just reminders, but there's coming a time when God will reign unchallenged. The future doesn't belong to the to the empires of this world. All the empires of history have fallen and now lie in the dust. The future belongs to God. There's a time when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah. That's the message of Revelation. And I, I forgot to talk about the millennium when you asked about views, but uh, just, just quickly, uh, the, in the second century, the earliest church fathers believed there would be a future thousand years. Um, most of church history um, so most of the Middle Ages, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, they believed that we were in the millennium uh, and after Constantine or you know, just between the first and second coming, that that's symbolic for the millennium. And then in the uh, 1800s and uh, during the Great Awakenings, especially in the U.S., Charles Finney, Jonathan Edwards, probably John Wesley, these people believed we were to establish God's kingdom on earth and, and set the millennium up. For Jesus. <laughs> they were post-millennial. So you've got all these different views, and all these people thought they were right, and God was using all of them. And that should be a reminder to us that just because we've always heard a certain view, it doesn't mean it's necessarily God's view. But God uses us despite our different views, but we probably can take greater encouragement from the book if we actually study it and see what it actually says for itself. Amen. And that's all we have time for today. And that is a great note to end on that really this book is full of encouragement for us that as we said earlier, Jesus came with his eye, not on the small potatoes of conquering Rome, but on the big picture of conquering death on our behalf. And, and revel the book of revelation actually, um, continues that message to us that it has been conquered and that we have nothing to fear in this time. So thank you, Craig, for being with me. And I will see you again next week. That's all we have time for today. I will see you again next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Move Forward with Dr. Kim Moss. Don't forget to support Kim Moss Ministries and the Move Forward with Dr. Kim program. We love serving you so much. See you next week. And remember, Never throw away your confidence. Keep moving forward.
thank you for joining us for the Move Forward podcast. We would love for you to rate this podcast and share it with a friend. You can connect with Dr. Kim on social media. For those links and more, visit her website, kimmoss.com. Host Dr. Kim Moss leads Kim Moss Ministries and Women of Our Time. She is the author of Prophetic Community, The Way of the Kingdom, Facing Ziklag, and The Four Questions. You can find those books on Amazon. Remember, never throw away your confidence. It is time to move forward.